The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everyone? My name is Steve Vandewall, and I'm the host of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. This podcast will cover a full spectrum of topics, including cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is very complicated. It's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be my job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you really, really, really like the show and are interested in sponsoring, please shoot me an email at logistics at cannabiscumlaude.com. Now enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. Uh, I'm here today with two friends and two previous guests, Elise Bergio of MJI Solutions and David Holland uh, from Prince Lobel and the executive director of Empire State Normal. Uh, two very prominent attorneys in the space. And today we're going to talk about some of the uh, litigation and lawsuits that are happening in New York State that we're all pretty familiar of with. Um, and we're first going to talk about the most recent lawsuit. Um, but before we do, just want to say thank you guys again for coming on the show. I know we got, everyone's got a lot going on, especially in the legal space, but I do, take, uh, I do appreciate you taking a second to uh, come on here and break all this kind of confusing stuff. There's a lot going on, and uh, I'm hoping by the end of it, we all have a, a much clearer understanding of what's going on. So, Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. You're, you're, come on the show anytime. I love having you on here. Seriously, it, uh, it really is a treat. So... Uh, first, I want to talk about the most recent lawsuit that is happening uh, from a group called the Coalition Coalition for Access to Regulated and Safe Cannabis. Uh, they are suing New York State. Uh, this is the second lawsuit that's happened in the past year. Um, and let's kind of get an idea of who is this coalition? Who are the members uh, of this coalition that's suing New York State? Yeah, sure. So the, the coalition is comprised of four registered organizations. Um, I think it's three potential general dispensaries out of New York City and some medical providers. Um, so it's a newly formed coalition. Um, I think that that kind of came out right after regulations were dropped. And I think people were seeing how the rollout was happening. Um, and, and it's being uh, represented by Firestein Kulik, the law firm. Okay. Now, what there's a lot of firepower and, you know, these RO, you know, these RO, you know, coalitions, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of legal support. Why exactly are they suing New York State? And who exactly are they suing in particular? Sure, Dave, you want to take that? Uh, sure. So the, um, the ROs, registered organizations, there are only 10 of them in New York, or there were 10 to start, and that number has been consolidated, but they are vertical monopolies. So they are able to cultivate their own product and sell it at retail to medical patients, and they're trying to make the conversion over into the regulated adult use market. So they have a genuine interest in trying to get that monopoly expanded out as quickly as possible. Uh, and what they have said and their main criticism, along with the potential retailers that Elise was just mentioning, is that the MRTA, the legalization statute, um, says that all applicants will be able to apply for licenses at the same time. And that is not what has happened because there's been a group of conditional licenses issued across the chain from cultivators to processors. And we have what's known as the CARD program or the Conditional Adult Use Retail Dispensary License. And that people have heard about where it's somebody who's been previously convicted or justice impacted, as they say, um, it has the opportunity to get first shot at getting to a licensed facility that will be a turnkey in some circumstances for the state has actually taken over the uh, actual storefront and then leased it out to a provider. So their argument is that it, that's unfair. That's not allowing all applicants to the market at the same time. And that, that's the gist of where they're going. At least, please. Uh, I know yeah. you know so much about this, so please go. So, on. well, it's uh, the dispensary language is is obviously very important in this respect because of how intense the zoning regulations are. So, for example, the regulations state that if uh, 
depending upon the population in your locality, you're either going to need to be a thousand or 2000 feet away from another dispensary. So really it is first to enter the market has the foothold. Um, and so when we talk about all dispensary licenses being opened at once per the MRTA, um, it's not necessarily that they couldn't have, have given licensed priority to these justice impacted individuals or women owned businesses or minority owned businesses, because that is language that's sufficient in the bill. The issue is, is that, um, because card wasn't really defined in the MRTA, giving them priority licensing, um, and then basically creating footholds in these areas, these geographic areas, which went from 150 dispensaries now to 300 dispensaries. So they doubled it in the last month or so, um, is where we ran into issues with this coalition. The coalition is saying this isn't fair. Um, and so we haven't really heard a response yet. The complaint uh, with the petition was submitted, but we haven't heard back from OCM, the defendant. Um, they have until April 28th to respond. Um, but it is an Article 78 proceeding. So it's a little bit different. It's in the Supreme Court of New York um, in Albany or in the Albany area. Um, but it's it, it's a different proceeding than that, like, say, the Verisite case, which we'll talk about. Um, it's usually a little bit more expedited. So we will see what what kind of happens with this uh, lawsuit rolling out. Yeah, and, and let me just say one thing, because there has been some, you know, issues of, of misnaming things. And so a lot of people have said, well, CARD is part of the social equity program. Uh, I don't see that uh, it that way. Under the MRTA, there are five specific categories of people that qualify for social equity, which would be, um, you know, uh, uh, People in the agricultural industry, women in minority-owned businesses, uh, people that came from impacted neighborhoods, and there's uh, uh, disabled veterans. Uh, there's one other. And so the justice-involved individual is not per se identified as a special priority person, though they may have come from prioritized neighborhoods. Yeah. So it's very complicated. As Lise just pointed out, the, the card program, which uh, uh, one of the problems is there, we don't know where the state has made arrangements or is eyeing entering into contact uh, contracts to put up, you know, state-sponsored storefronts. So, therefore, having anybody go in as a private citizen that's waiting to go into the application process, which part and parcel, which you have to really put in a site plan and a security plan, we don't know where to tell people to go because we don't know where cards going to put their thing. And if there's a thousand foot or two thousand foot boundary, it's a real problematic thing. So while I am uh, personally and as a member of Prince Lovell and as a member of Normal, I can speak um, on their behalf saying we like the idea of the card program. I'm just not sure that it has all the um, uh, legal footing to have been launched the way it was and that there might be a legitimate claim there by the uh, coalition about not everybody's being able to enter into the market at the same time. There's also this issue um, of separation of powers. Okay. So, um, as, as Dave pointed out previous earlier, there have been three conditional types of licenses. One's a cultivator, one's processors, and then these card, these card license holders, the cultivators and the processors, the AUCCs, AUCPs, um, came in through a legislative process. They were, they were formed through, uh, through the, the, through two bills, okay? Um, now, the CARD program was done through the regulatory process. Now, the difference is, is when we put it through a legislative process, it's submitted in the Assembly and the Senate and it's voted on, and then it's signed by the governor. Now, for this process, for the CARD process, it and this is the argument from, from the petitioner, this is the argument from the coalition, that there was an expansion of powers done through the Office of Cannabis Management and the CCB through a regulatory process to one, create a new priority licensing category and two, not doing it through the legislator as we've seen with the other conditionals. And so um, even though it was done through a public comment period and, and submitted that way, another argument made by the petitioner is that this was an expansion of powers and that it should have been done through the legislator. So is that a and one thing? Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Sorry. You go ahead. I think one thing will be very interesting. We saw this a bit with the Trump administration where he may, you know, you're supposed to have uh, department heads and, and administrative heads are with the advise and consent of the Senate. 
And so therefore, you saw he had a lot of acting heads of these departments. That was a way to bypass the advise and consent process. And so the question will be whether the state will or OCM will take the position. These conditional licenses are not licenses, and therefore the applications for licenses are different than this temporary probationary license that um, is designed uh, in the narrowest way possible to promote the interests of the state to try to redress the harms of the drug war and get those people that were most impacted to uh, the most competitive positions without taking into account social equity or the other types of license applications they're out there that need to be spread across the entire populace to allow them to to apply at the same time. So it'll be an interesting business. Yeah, to I see don't how they I, defend on that. I think you know the Office of Cannabis Management had the right idea. I just think that it was executed in a way that wasn't congruent. It wasn't on the right. What I mean by this is, card could easily have fit into that community who has been dis- disproportionately yeah. impacted category based off the the application it was asking for an address and it, they wanted to see what the median income was on that address and there were a whole laundry list of things where i think the argument could be made that it is priority licensing it's just kind of like subsections a b c in priority licensing which regulations are allowed to expand upon law isn't going to have every single you know period and and t cross because it's it's obviously something you got to you get in you get it approved and then the regs are where you really get the detail um I do think that the issue is, is that we brought in so many other parties to this game with card licensing and specifically DASNY. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this isn't a card license that just got priority licensing. They are also are tied to real estate and they're also tied to a loan. Technically, I mean, the loan is is definitely in flux right now. But when what the initial idea of the of a card license was, is that you were getting this loan from the from office of cannabis management from DASNY that would assist with your real estate, your build out. They would enter into the lease with you. You would be a sublease, a sublesser from, from the, um, sorry, subleasee from the, from DASNY and they would help and facilitate the whole process. And you would have a loan directly with DASNY. Now the issue was it was supposed to be a, a $200 million uh, loan fund um, and it just hasn't rolled out that way. And so really all they have is 50 million that was put in the budget last year that has, I think they may maybe use less than 5 million of it so far. Um, and so all of these, these people who are part of card, a lot of people who've applied with card knowing that they needed to have the loan in order to succeed are now not getting that money anymore because they haven't been able to raise the fund. So, um, and that's as of today, you know, that could very well change. They might be in talks of finding the fund and, and what have you, but as of right now, that money is only in the 50 million guaranteed category. So, but, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, but what you're saying is so important and it's what yeah. makes New York so unique. Unique. It is becoming a market participant with its own people that's trying to, uh, you know, redress the harms of the drug force. So they're saying, we're going to provide you the space. We're going to provide you the money and we're going to provide you first opportunity. Whether that follows in the spirit of the MRTA or actually comes out of the um powers that are uh, listed in it, um, that's a main, you know, a, a cause for debate, but there can mm-hmm. be no debate. New York is the most progressive and has truly embraced its own industry when it's putting its own money where its mouth is. I think it's just 100%. fantastic. And you, mm-hmm. you explained it so well, Lisa. Thank you for that. <laughs> you too, Dave. Is, is, um, and yeah, it's, it's, Dave hit the nail on the head too with it. It's, we're, it's very difficult to com- make comparative analysis, right? Right now with what New York is doing. Nobody's even close. I mean, Illinois was supposed to be the gold standard for social equity. And then they hadn't seen anybody that was a minority owned business owner for like 18 to 21 months or something like that. It was, it was, um, it's, it's crazy. So they wanted to come out of the gate really. And they're not wrong in order to really have a socially inclusive and equitable market. You have to have it right off the bat. It can't be, you know, done, with a lot of times with medical operators going first or with, uh, you know, a massive general licensing and, and everyone gets awarded at once. Cannabis is first in it's, it always has been, you gotta be the person at the starting line. And, yeah. and traditionally we haven't seen social and equitable businesses, minority women at the starting line at the same time. And that's where problems have ar- like arisen. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that New York's head was in the right place and they've, you know, 
have done probably the best job at, at trying to create a socially equitable market. But the problem is, is that it is so complicated that we're now like almost 750 days since the MRTA passed. And we have this proliferation of, you know, unlicensed shops and unregulated shops that are now competing with the couple of, you know, legal dispensaries. And, you know, I think, you know, something like New York City, that's going to be a really tough thing to control because it seems like every, you know, I've been in New York City a couple times in the last month. There's a shop on every corner. Like that thousand foot rule, especially in New York City, is going to be tough to enforce. Rochester or smaller cities, you can get away with it. But I feel like New York City in particular is is become a, a an out of control animal. Um, but I guess you also you, have to remember too, half of the localities in the state of New York have opted out. Yeah. So we're only really dealing with half the state on where people can actually sell or on site consume in this state. So um, this is a big issue. And, and actually Dave can speak to this because he was just quoted on this, but the long Island uh, yeah. uh, awardance of, 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 40 now card licenses is going to be almost impossible. Um, so I don't know, Dave, you want to talk about that a little bit about just how that rolls out? Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's extremely tough because there's only five towns in Suffolk County, which is a, the easternmost county out there that have uh, that did not opt out of the, the dispensary and social consumption site program. So, you know, if you're going to have a thousand feet and you're only at five towns, I don't think it's going to be an easy job to get even 10 of those people set up in those five towns, much less all 40. So uh, I think we'll see reversals over time of municipalities that opted out, but it will have to be a campaign matter that will go back to general election unless they can call for a special election under their own rules. Um, but all that is to say it's, it's um, a complicated area. Uh, New York City, while it, you know, the municipalities, by the way, can ask for a reprieve from the thousand foot setback rule and can say, mm. we, we think that there's a viable reason to have people closer together. And the OCM is looking forward to that. Um, they were just trying to set a baseline so that people didn't feel that it was, um, it will be like every other, you know, like Starbucks <laughs> yeah. or something that has something on every corner too. But your point, Steve, is a good one. Um, right now, the unregulated market, it, there are 1,500 of them supposedly in the five boroughs of New York. The problem is, and, and history proves it, you can't arrest your way out of this problem mm-hmm. and you can't find your way out of this problem. So until you all of a sudden say, let's have 300 people go into, and what I, uh, in a letter I'm proposing to OCM this week, and just off the record is, you know, you with these illegal shops, you have landlords that clearly are disposed to wanting to rent to cannabis operators, simply kick out the illegal operators, and that can be done in a way that they don't get harmed dramatically. There's no criminal penalty. There's no tax consequence. They walk, put in a card recipient or any other applicants and put them in because you have a ready, willing, and able landlord, which is the hardest part, as Lisa's just pointing out. Finding somebody will rent to the cannabis industry is impossible. Mm -hmm. You put them in New York City, you put 300 of them in. Now, all of a sudden, those 1,500 shops, there's a basis to go after them and really start to drive them out whether it's going to be by the Department of Tax and Finance or, or the Sheriff's Department, that's a means of uh, which enforcement agency wants to take it on. But now you have a business you're actually protecting. The three setup operators, I think the fourth one is due to open soon in, in New York City. That's all of New York City, a city of 8 million people. There's, there's really no reason uh, or there's not a credible method by which you can go enforcing the law and kicking out the illegal operators when there's so few retailers to fill that void. So it's just going to, you're just going to drive it back to the delivery services or something else. You're not going to get rid of the illegal business. What we need is a full onslaught of licensed operators that start to absorb that, what was otherwise working in the illicit market. I think that's the only way to do it. Well, and, and you got to think, yeah. you know, my thoughts always go back to the licensed growers and processors. I mean, these hemp operators have been t- getting their teeth kicked in for the last couple of years, you know, transitioned into cannabis thinking this was their golden ticket. And now you got 150 licensed farmers who now have six to seventh old month crop out, which is, you know, it has a finite shelf life and there's four stores. So, you know, do we see, you know, 
If I if if I was in that position, I would have no and I was feeding my family that way, I'd have no choice but to be selling it out the back door because all that work and all that crop and all that just to go to waste, I mean, that's food on your table. So I hope for the sake of the farmers and the processors, I mean, some of these, there's a processor in, in New York's uh, in Rochester right now, they put up like an $8 million facility and they've been just sitting on it for months waiting for products to actually, you know, have a place to sell. So, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure in place and a lot of farmers in place that, you know, with only a limited amount of legal stores, you know, you're hurting a lot of these licenses. I'd be curious to see how many people actually renew their license or even grow next year, because I feel like a lot of these farmers aren't going to have, you know, probably aren't going to have an end means, you know, any place to sell their crop, you know, with only four stores. But um, yeah, well, think about just, this too with conditionals, right? So a lot of the conditional cultivators specifically are in upstate, our yeah. area, Buffalo, Rochester, mm-hmm. Central, you know, uh, north of the city, right? And the big issue is the the, dis- the distribution component of the AUCCs, AUCPs is, is expiring soon. Um, and a uh, problem, and I know this firsthand for our growers and processors, is that they're having a difficult time facilitating a relationship, which we already know, facilitating relationships with people in New York City. It is a big feat, right? Because you're trying to make these connection points with these new card license holders to get yep. your product in. There isn't that much differentiation between growers upstate that there is going to be overall, right? I mean, a a lot of these guys have outdoor sun grown, you know, there's going to be varying levels of I'm sure different strains and things like that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, it's, it's pretty even keeled on what they're selling. And a lot of these dispensaries are actually asking to go into process form, right? They don't necessarily want flour on the shelves. They're looking for, edibles they're looking for oils pens things like that because um they are worried about the fact that it has been sitting for about seven months their flower um so the the aucc's aucps have uh, it's it's they're being set up to like have a very difficult time finishing off what they were starting in may which is getting their product on the shelves and and being the first guys out there if anything they're making it seem like the product yeah. that should have been on shelves in September is, you know, what we're seeing right now, which is delayed and, and, ex- and it's expiring product. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these guys are about to hit the, hit the farm. What in May, they're going to start planting again. And I totally agree with, with your assessment. They, they might say, no, they're going to, they might want to wait again and see how it rolls out and have maybe more dispensaries. Yeah. Um, I also think, uh, based off the the regulations, a lot a lot of these uh, AUCCs are probably going to to change their tier and change the type of way that they grow. Um, you know, obviously with the conditional cultivators, they had to choose between being outdoor and being limited lighting for greenhouse. Um, and you can't you could mix greenhouse and, and outdoor, but you couldn't have any indoor. And it's the same thing uh, that we're going to see. You can't have outdoor and indoor. In the general, can have mixed uh, light and and outdoor, or I mean, and and indoor. So I, I'll be curious to see how many of these these growers transition into the, an indoor license or a greenhouse license with la- with more la- light deprivation. Um, because at the moment, I think they're really struggling to do outdoor in New York State. Yeah. We're not California. We don't have the humidity and the climate um, that that we've seen in, in the West Coast. So let me just say this, you know, you two have just raised such incredibly important points about some of the drawbacks the market exists. So for me, this suggests, um, and I'm only speaking for me, not Prince LaBelle or normal, but it suggests the exact insincerity of the coalition, because while it has wannabe retailers, those would be a solution to the problems of the, um, you know, uh, conditional cultivators and processors allowing the registered organizations and do nothing except to actually increase the competition in a very limited market. Um, and, and they can sell them to both the card applicants and their own retail application operations, I believe. Um, at a minimum, they're selling their own places. They have the money to get set up. So all you're doing is increasing their foothold in the monopoly. Um, so I find that to be an insincere motive. And what I have is a problem against some of the registered organizations being allowed to come in at the same time as other um, applicants, because it's not a fair, you know, level playing field that they enter into. 
I and, mean, and you pointed out the very reasons why that is. Yeah, Dave, I think what we've seen, every lawyer I've spoken with who is closely paying attention to the regulations and, and how this is playing out in New York State, we all saw the writing on the wall with the RO suing. This litigation wasn't a surprise. Um, I, it's it's one of those things where, I mean, if, you, if the regulations essentially kind of... St- rolled back what the MRTA was allowing for these ROs, which was an entrance into the market. Um, it didn't say when, but it did say with one a one-time fee, they could enter into the market, um, which obviously is very vague. And I, I think OCM could have capitalized on that, but it, it got expanded upon quite a bit with the regulations. It went from being a one-time fee and then uh, every time you want to co-locate, it's another $3 million and you have up to three times to do that. Um, and, and, um, you can't really enter into the adult use space for three years. And then there's, you know, if you do enter into it, you're going to have to divest all of your interests. And so it went from being, you know, registered organizations can enter into this market to registered organizations can enter into this market with a, now a laundry list of 25 things. And uh, I always think that there's a happy medium somewhere. Um, I don't think that the ROs, given the, um, way that the medical program, it, the way that we're handling right now, I'm worried there isn't going to be a medical program because it just incentivizes these 10 ROs from doing what they were initially licensed to do, which is keep a surviving medical program. Um, we don't really have strong regulations right now that suggest to in, one, increase patient count, which is a, is a, a problem right now because we just keep seeing a, a decrease in those numbers. And two, for the ROs to keep putting out product, putting out product that they're not seeing this opportunity to then enter into the adult use space in a realistic timeline and for a realistic price. So you have to kind of come and meet these people in the middle right now, because it's going to take the OCM and the CCB, you know, incentivizing patients to remain medical patients. Um, and it's going to incent- you have to incentivize the ROs to, to come to the middle here because I, as we've seen, these medical programs tend to fail mm-hmm. once an adult use space rolls out and we didn't have a very strong one to begin with. So um, the last thing you want to see is people who really need specific products and, 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 and having a cheaper price to get them, you know, 7% is a lot different than, than a 26%, 20, if we keep the wholesale tax, you go all the way up to, I think Jason Klimek said somewhere in the forties. So it's important that uh, it's important that we find some way to not totally isolate registered organizations, even though uh, a lot of times in rollouts, they seem like the easiest scapegoat. But I think we we, we got to play ball here because uh, it's an important component of the, of the space. I, I would agree. And like, you know, everybody likes to throw flack at the MSOs, myself included, you know, and in some cases, rightfully so. But I do think at this point, like if it wasn't for, I mean, I think this is going to expedite m- necessarily expedite this program. And, you know, while there's always going to be cons to every situation, I think the pros in this situation is that it may open up general licensing a lot sooner than if they were involved. The problem with that is, you know, even though it's good for somebody like me and anybody who wants a micro who, or anybody who wasn't involved in that first round of licensees, these people that were, you know, these 150 farmers and these adult use processors who haven't been selling anything for the last year are all of a sudden going to be met with, you know, all these brand new general licenses. Now, granted, it's going to take a while to build up and there's a whole timeline. Um, but I do think, you know, I, I, I think that the people who are already in the industry, I think it kind of hurts them. But I also think it provides, you know, a, an open door for a lot of us who have been sitting around and waiting for licenses and, you know, I've been trying to plan for licensure for three years and mm-hmm. it's hard to make decisions when it comes to real, real estate and raising capital and building your team and hiring lawyers and consultants when there is no timeline. You know, how do you, you know, and th- there's a lot of people who've been paying on real estate for the last three years and paying their consultants. And at some point the coffers are going to drain dry. Um, what I, you know, what do you think is the outcome of this? You know, what do you think, how do you think this all plays out and what's it mean for the industry? I think lawsuits are inevitable, right? We're going to see them and there's going to be more, right? It's not going to stay at two. It's this year. We'll probably see a few more uh, roll out here. Um, I, I'm actually, frankly, more worried about Verisite than I am about uh, 
the coalition's case simply because of just the way that the um the district court had had basically stated in their in their their ruling that they thought that the case had merit independent of the the granting of the preliminary injunction so um i'm worried about card being considered a constitutional law violation more so um than i am i think this coalition case i could be wrong um but article 78 proceedings tend to be much more difficult to win um and typically it's my understanding that um Usually they're not trying to completely impact a regulatory process, which allowing the ROs and allowing a general open would would be a significant uh, regulatory bump in the road. So um, I don't know. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, it's funny. I, I come out on the exact opposite of where you are. Um, okay. On Verisite, I don't think that there's much of anything to that case. Um, I think Judge Sharp, who is the federal district court judge who ruled on it, not somebody who has been pro cannabis ever uh, from my personal experience in front of him. Um, I think that he viewed the conviction, the requirement of a New York conviction as being the requirement of a New York residency requirement on a historical basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's wrong. First of all, it was your, you can be an out of state resident, but you got to have certain ties to New York and everything else. The qualifying event was the New York, cannabis or cannabis related conviction or arrest that ended in an alternative conviction like a disorderly conduct. Um, that's a qualifying event, not a residency requirement event. And there's no way for New York to more narrowly, as they say, tailor the requirement to redress their goal of the, of the MRTA, which is to have restorative justice for the harms done by the drug war. So I don't believe that they could ever succeed. And I'm surprised that it got this far, but I believe the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal court that sits above the district court, will pretty readily uh, straighten that out. So on the uh, opposite of Elise, uh, in the coalition case, I think they have a good argument that, look, the, the card program is not anywhere to be found in the statute. And so therefore, this is agency rulemaking rather than legislative, you know, directive. Um, that said, I think that we'll see whether the state takes the position, but we can create conditional licenses and temporary solutions because all these are probationary. They're not, you know, you're not guaranteed a permanent license. If you're a cardholder, you still got to go through the application process. I think they can argue much like you were pointing out, Steve, and, and, and at least two, you know, you have conditional cultivators and processors who are sitting on product going, you know, literally rotting on vine. Um, there needs to be an immediate solution. And the ROs are not that solution because the ROs are not going to be required to buy from those people. So therefore, you've got to have retailers that are responsive to that market uh, surplus. And that's where CARD comes in. And I think that to have opened up the entire licensing process um, where you'd have tens of thousands of applications would be too burdensome. So it was easier to say, let's pick this group of people with a prior conviction who have business experience only 900 applied, 300 are now granted the license. That will start to at least absorb the surplus. Um, it's not a perfect solution, but I think it is a legally viable solution that I think will uphold. Um, and I think the Article 78 will do, will ultimately be dismissed by the coalition. But I think they're, they're but uh, as Lisa's concerns are, a minor just the exact opposite. I do think that like plan C for OCM should to should just be to open up a general retail licensing and have card reapply through a general dispensary opening um, and have a box that says, did you previously apart apply for a conditional adult use dispensary license? Um, and personally, I think that mitigates all of their site and mitigates the entire coalition lawsuit because you do open it up and Hey, they can be as slower and, and, and prioritizing it as they want, which is why you can make the argument that card is part of priority licensing. Um, but it does afford them the opportunity for a little leeway. You don't have to worry about these lawsuits. A lot of time lawsuits happen because people feel like they're being excluded. And so when you do open up a, a general window like that, it's not necessarily going to be as much, uh, as, as impactful with a lawsuit if you're a delayed possible applicant or possible license holder. Um, and we're seeing that now you don't, you're not seeing, let's put it this way. You had 900 applicants for card 
And so far, you know, they're about to award another hundred at this next OCM meeting, allegedly. You're not seeing any of these card license, potential card license holders suing because they haven't been awarded first, have you? Right. So I don't necessarily think you're going to see that many people start suing on an, a general application window if maybe they aren't the first person getting licensed, but they've applied for it. Now they're waiting for a possible license to come in. Um, so I always think that that's, I, I always try to find the middle ground of, of where it can come in. And I even think that OCM can have a plan B, plan C, which is do some emergency regulations, open up a general window and allow people to start applying because you don't need a, a real estate address. You don't need an address to apply that's per the regs right now. So really all people need to apply with is their financials, uh, community impact plan, energy plan, and that's basically it. And then well, you're going to need site plan. You're going to need, I think you do need to be tethered to some location because those have to be taken into account. From what well, I, it doesn't happen until the provisional. It doesn't happen until you're after you're awarded. So you're awarded as an applicant, right? And then you have 12 months to finish your provisional license where you do have a site plan. You do have all those things. So you could be awarded pursuant to this provisional license, which is then when you submit your your real estate, you submit your site plan, you submit your security plans, all those things. So really just to apply, you don't need all those things. Um, True. I, I would just approve. But for me, practically speaking, I think that your chances of success are limited if you don't have some of these things nailed down. Oh, no, I um, totally agree. I just mean like if they had to do this at an expedited pace, you very well could. It wouldn't right. be outside the bounds of what's been written down. Um, I think that your solution is a good one. It also, you know, then it eliminates the problem of where is DASNY, the dormitory authority, planning on putting their places. You know, everybody's open now. The market's open to figure out real market's estate. Market's open then. Yep. Yeah. Then you can figure I out also think it takes buffers. the pressure off DASNY if they can't find the money, because yeah. that is going to be a huge issue um, if, if the fund isn't secured. Um, Rumor has it they've got it now, and then Governor Hochul's due to come out in an actual press announcement. But I, I don't. I wonder if it's that was. I heard that rumor on the same day just before the announcement of the lawsuit. We'll see. Yeah. I, 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 you know, again, New York's got the best of intentions, but the best laid plans of mice and men, right? You know, it's a. Uh, uh, they anticipate litigation. They're aware of it. I don't think they're afraid of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like to see, I think, Lisa, you, you, you're, you're on it. You know, there's just, there's a practical way. Let's just open it up. Not because of the lawsuit. Let's just open it up because at least you can get as many applicants that are qualified as possible into the pool. And you can still have card go first. You can still have those guys go Correct. first if that really is the priority that OCM is making their mission based on. But it also allows you to do minorities, do women, do disadvantaged farmers, do disabled right. veterans. I mean, you're getting, we're getting a lot of pushback on these actual explicit priority groups, social equity groups in the law that have now been set, you know, yeah. down the ladder uh, with, with car going first. So. Um, and it drives revenue, you know, and it drives revenue. Yep. Faster and the market, the faster the revenue. Yeah. I was surprised they doubled down on card and didn't just, open a window but uh that was just that's just uh, my observation i was i was very surprised that they went from 150 to 300 um just given i think the the comments surrounding card and i think the difficulties for people that have been part of the program but you know it, it all ties back to you got to get stores out immediately and that's the only way to fix the supply chain right now um everything that we'll see in the next two years is going to be correcting the supply chain. That's when you really boil down to like a step one analysis. Yeah. We're struggling now because we have too much product. When, if we have, you know, even 80 more stores come up in this year, you're going to have another problem, which is now the, the supply side on, uh, for general. So then that's going to be the issue because now we're not going to have enough product and we're not going to have enough processors. Um, we're not going to have enough distributors and let's hope that there's enough labs to suffice this, this state because only I think five were awarded and six total have applied. And you got to hope that that's going to be enough for the scalability that we're talking about with, with this market, um, yeah. because that was it. That's all that applied, right? It's not like they're holding yeah. 900 apps and they took 300. It's they're awarding everybody who applied for laboratories. Um, so that's an issue too that I think we're going to see. Micro businesses are going to be a very 
uh, unique license structure. Also, I think based off the fact of how does the dispensary or the where the micro cultivator processor um, is allowed to sell their product, if they're going to have to follow the exact same regulations as a dispensary does, because you're going to have a lot of difficulty finding, you know, micro businesses are going to be able to find spaces that are in the same zoning requirements yeah. and and things like that, that we're seeing on dispensaries. So um, it, you think they'll get a farm gate where they can sell right out of their facility where they're growing? So they, I think they could absolutely not in a town that doesn't allow retail or on-site. They won't yeah, be able to. That's the problem. Yeah. That's the problem. I also think that they do have that opportunity to sell off-site, but I don't think micro businesses are realizing typically that that means that you have to follow the path of a retail dispensary technically, which is within a, you have to be a thousand feet, 2000 feet from another. You have to be 500 away from school, community facilities now as a new add on to that you know, away from a, a religious, religious institution. So a place of worship, it, it, it's so limiting on, on where you can sell. Um, and so some of the benefits of micros are going to be difficult to obtain if these uh, places aren't selling probably out of where they're located. Um, right. well, and if I, I've actually so had, a whole, so recently yeah. I've been shopping around for some warehouse space and I actually found this awesome 5,000 square foot warehouse, industrial zoned, not a school or church or anything inside. It checks every box. It's great. Big three-phase power, everything. Cool landlord. Problem is, is the one, you know, one stipulation is there's absolutely no retail allowed on site. And maybe it's just this town. I don't know if that's how it goes with all industrial zone properties, but I feel like, you know, if, cause I've been looking for industrial zone, you know, for commercial or for cultivation and manufacturing, if micro businesses are going to find that, okay, I found this great industrially zone space, but now I have to find another retail space. And if it's in, you know, the same municipality and they opted out, then you got to go to a different town. So that's going to, I'm really kind of paying attention to the micro really closely. That's something that I've wanted since I started hearing language about it years ago. But I do think that it's going to be, you know, finding that perfect property that's zoned for cultivation and manufacturing and allows retail. Those are kind of unicorn facilities, at least in my research, you know, I've been on Zillow or LoopNet and all the, you know, the, the, the real estate, you know, sites for a year now and finding that perfect property is challenging. You know, there's plenty of retail available and there's plenty of, you know, there's limited warehouse, but something that, you know, um, will, will complement both of those, I think is going to be tough. And it's just, you know, for a small business, you know, affording the rent or buying two properties, that's not really feasible for everybody. So I'll and the other thing is too with that is a lot of times you'll have to go for a special use permit yes. on a, a building like that. So mm-hmm. you would ask for a variance and that requires public comment when you do things like that. And I can't tell you how many times we've seen uh, when I was practicing out in Oregon, uh, going for, for those variances and allowing the public to come in and, and pick, uh, you know, holes at why that's not a good location for yep. retail and it getting rejected. Yeah. So it does open the door for that type of, of uh, anti-retail establishment uh, out of the, out of the public. And it, it can be very problematic. So um, yeah, it's, it's going to be difficult. I think ideally they wanted it to mirror right breweries and mirror, uh, you know, onsite um, distilleries and things like that. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a lot harder than people anticipate, mostly because those spaces take big square footages oh, and yeah. micros we're talking about small. So now you're you're even more so impacted, I think, personally. There's a little bit more leeway when we're talking about large space. Yeah. Well, guys, I uh, real quick before we go, like a quick update on. So recently, Governor Hochul came out with this new enforcement proposal as a way to kind of curb this proliferating, unregulated, unlicensed shop problem that really is happening in every city, uh, but really it's problematic in New York City just by sheer population density. Can you give us a quick rundown of what this proposal said and what it's trying to accomplish? Sure. So there were actually – this is – there were two enforcement bills that were actually being looked at. There was one that was put in through the legislator 
uh, earlier this month, maybe it was back in, in January, actually. Um, and then obviously the one by the governor, which had just dropped last week. Um, the, the enforcement bill has been a debated topic in the legislature since last year when the bill died. There was a bill that, that died uh, before the budget. Um, and the problem really between uh, the legislator and the communities is that they don't want additional criminal penalties. And Dave mentioned this early on. We don't want to have a, a enforcement bill that puts people back in jail when we're already starting to try to take them out or expunge any of these crimes that were mar- marijuana related. Um, the issue is this is a huge public per- the public is on top of these illicit stores. Okay. So there's not just people in the community in the cannabis community who are uh, dealing with this. It's, and at least on my end, I get, I get asked this question constantly about illicit stores and, and why aren't they being shut down? And it's a problem because it doesn't really enforce the rollout of a legalized market. So it's an easy bipartisan issue to get an enforcement bill done because both sides of the line mm-hmm. do want something to help promote a legalized market. Um, now governor Hochul's bill, uh, basically the breakout is, 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 uh, uh, more of a tax and finance approach to shutting these stores down. Um, you could be fined up to $10,000 a day, depending upon, um, you know, how they're finding you. You could be fined up to 200,000 if you're also cultivating, um, and it would be really enforced by the Department of Tax and Finance more so than any other branch. Um, o- OCM does have an enforcement team. It's very, it's not staffed very well. Um, I think OCM in general is is usually uh, struggling to to bring on more staff members to to facilitate this rollout. But um, we'll see if the bill gets passed. It still has to go through the legislature. Still has to be. A- approved by the assembly, approved by the Senate, and then re-signed by the governor. So um, I do think we will see some sort of enforcement happening just because of what a big public health issue this is. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure if it's going to be the governor's bill or if we'll see it in a, in a different format. Um, that's just my, my take on it. Hmm. There had been, um, uh, in addition to that, there had been talk in New York City about trying to go after the landlords and allow these illegal operations to go. And I just uh, I don't think that that's a viable way to go. You know, um, there are defenses to landlords that would say, look, the person showed me a CBD retailer license. They said they were selling cannabinoids. I didn't know they were selling THC. I don't know enough of the difference. And then there, the threat was, well, we'll fine them a thousand dollars a day for every day they allow that illegal operator to, you know, uh, use the, the premises. And that would strike me as um, unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution's Eighth Amendment as uh, unreasonable fines clause, where, you know, you're you're penalizing somebody disproportionately to the offense that they committed, particularly when they may have an innocent owner defense. Um, So there's a lot that needs to be worked out here. But again, all these things are academic until you have the substitute legalized market to come in and displace the the illicit market. This is just going to go on and on. Um, and I think it's it's a, uh, a foolish consistency, which will be the hobgoblin of little minds to think that you're somehow going to come up with a magic solution when you only have you know six licensed operators in the entire state. You need to have, have a full force, as Elisa is suggesting, legalize it all, bring everybody in right now. Let all the cards in and all the other applicants in. Let you know, do something. But you're going to have to displace and, and displacement's not really the key. It's amnesty. We really need to bring in all the illegal operators that are allowed to now come out and say, I didn't own a successful business, which is what, you know, legitimate successful business, which is what card requires. You know, but I was this person. I was legacy. I'm not just an opportunist who opened up a store. Yep. If you bring all those folks and absorb them, then you have the market has much less of competition than it has like in California, where you really have a two market system. Yep. And New York's going to, for New York to really be the progressive uh, thought leader in the space, it needs to find a way to absorb, uh, not to alienate the, you know, illicit market. The issue is, is there's definitely, and David on the head, this differentiation between people capitalizing and having a brick and mortar and legacy operators. And I get asked this question a lot, like, how do you differentiate? And it's a very, I think, subjective uh, analysis, probably all three of us might have a different opinion on, mm-hmm. on how we separate the two. Um, 
but even within the cannabis community, there's a big, there's a big, uh, brawl out on that because legacy operators, people who don't have brick and mortars are not happy with the way that, uh, these stores have been allowed to also just go and sell and, and have, you know, not being checked when they've been living in fear for, for the last two decades, three decades. So, um, it's a, it's a delicate balance in this space of, of how different groups are represented and, and how things uh, can be impacted based off of, you know, street credibility and, and what's happening and, and, and all these places. And um, yeah, I just think everybody should be, let's see how people do on a legalized market. And if, if it's not working out, it's not working out, but that's uh, the illicit market is, is going to continue to be an argument for anybody who doesn't want to see this rollout play. Yeah. Um, it's an easy thing for them to bring up. But New York has, has so made itself the proving ground for all those people who thought they understood how complicated the cannabis industry really was. And you're in the world's largest cannabis single consumption market. Um, it is incredibly complex. It's incredibly striated. There are numerous issues that nobody took into account. So, the the um, the brazenness that some people find in the gray market brings to light actually the realities of what that market was, both on legacy side, the opportunistic sides. And this is where I think you'll never see a greater um, learning environment in real time like you're watching in New York. And that's what's been so fun as somebody who's been doing this for you know about 30 years of advocacy to see this all come up. And it is definitely... Um, it, you know, it's a quagmire on its best day. It's really fun because I've been watching this for decades know, and, and have always thought in my little, you know, spare time, what would it look like to have a legalized market? Well, now everybody gets a chance to see that and your opinions matter yeah. and your criminal history matters. So mm-hmm. it really makes it a fantastic um, learning ground. And, and people like Elise coming into it and others who have background experience and the newcomers who ask the questions that us veterans have been doing this yep. for too long forget to ask. Um, it is really exciting. And and to be on opportunities, Steve, you're, you're one of the few people that has been an outspoken advocate for a long time and really done something about it and provided a forum for those of us that want to get to bigger audiences to talk about this. This show has been great, and I am so grateful every time you ask me to be part of it. So thank you. I love having you guys on. Seriously, it is such a treat. I love talking to you both on air and off. You're you're truly, you know, a wealth of knowledge. I mean, two of the best, and you've both been doing it a long time. Uh, always so good to talk to you both. You always bring so much to the table, and I know my audience uh, is really appreciative. So thanks again for coming on the show on such short notice. I'm sure we, this will be due for a follow-up in a couple months because it seems like there's always something new popping up in New York State Cannabis. And uh, I'm just so appreciative of all the, work, all the work that you both are doing. Thank you so much. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn and all other social media platforms, as well as Cannabuzz. And if you'd like to help support the show, search up Cannabis Cum Laude on Patreon. And of course, all of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for watching and listening.